This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of violence, homicide, and death that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for listeners under 13. Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we feel are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into ancient Greek traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Eurydice lay amongst the ashy moss and dark lichens of the underworld, her airy body like a lead weight. Even lifting her arms took concentration and agonizing effort. It was far easier to simply close her heavy eyelids and dream. She didn't dream of life or the flowers of the Earth's abundant forest floors. Not anymore. Her sleeping mind was filled by the same dark shadows and misty fumes that drifted around her. Memories of a time before death eluded her, just out of reach— Even her own name was so distant, she had forgotten it. Until, out of the black night, she heard the sound of a lyre. Eurydice, oh Eurydice. That song, why do I know it? What is it calling forth from my shadowy soul? The delicate way the notes play together, slipping like pearls on a string. So familiar. And now a sweet voice, crying out, lamenting Eurydice. Eurydice, that is my name. And that voice, it is Orpheus.
Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're concluding the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, an ancient Greek myth about two doomed lovers who cannot bear to part, even in the face of death. Last week, we saw the couple's blissful union devolve into quick, dramatic tragedy. We then followed Orpheus down to the underworld where he was armed with only his lyre. This week, we'll hear about the conclusion of Orpheus's quest and the dark, dramatic end of this epic tale of love and loss. When Eurydice died from a snakebite in the woods of Thrace, her new husband Orpheus was devastated. A talented musician, he turned to song to express his grief. His music was so beautiful that man, beast, and God were all moved. Orpheus's father, Apollo, the god of light, was so saddened by his son's heartbreak that he offered Orpheus a gift. If Orpheus dared descend to the underworld to win Eurydice back from death, Apollo would protect him. Orpheus would cross the river Styx twice into and out of the land of the dead, and he would live. Orpheus leapt at the chance, feeling hope stir in his chest for the first time since losing his beloved. He knew the underworld was full of perils. He knew that its god, Hades, had a stony, cold heart. But he was determined to take this chance to sing his plea and win back Eurydice, no matter what challenges Hades put in his path. He descended into the underworld. At the sound of Orpheus's song, Eurydice sprang from her bed of black moss. The cloudy shadows still held sway over her mind, but she knew that voice. Calling on all the power she could muster, she drifted toward the song. She followed it past the great elm tree of the underworld, but she wasn't tempted by the false dreams that lay on the bottom of each rustling leaf. She followed it through hordes of other shades, silently weeping at the agony in Orpheus's voice. She followed the music all the way to the throne of Hades and Persephone, his queen. There at their feet knelt Orpheus. He was pleading for her life. Eurydice reached out her shadowy hand towards her beloved, the man who had wooed her with his golden voice. 
who had taken her in his arms in spite of Hyman's refusal to bless their union. The man she had thought more vibrant than any plant or animal or babbling brook. She longed to wrap him in a tight embrace, to feel his heartbeat against hers. But she knew she would not be able to touch him. Not here, not like this. As one of the dead, she was nothing more than mist and darkness. And so she stayed in the crowd and listened with the rest as Orpheus spoke. She saw Persephone's face soften, and then Hades as Orpheus sang, and finally she heard Hades reply. Orpheus could have her, could bring Eurydice back to the land of the living. Hades would let her go. She would be with Orpheus once more, and she would run free amongst the glorious flowers and the throbbing light of full day, far from this realm of eternal shadow. She stepped forward towards Orpheus as Hades spoke his final words. Eurydice could go back to the world of the living as long as Orpheus didn't turn around to look at her until they were out of the underworld. Eurydice stopped short as the rest of the shades cleared a path for Orpheus. She stared up to Hades, who returned her gaze with a stern, steely countenance that was impossible to read. She began a silent prayer. Have the strength, he asks of you, Orpheus. You who are a singer, not a fighter. Have the strength to resist temptation. Have the strength to bring me back to life. You who thrive on pleasure and love, not restriction. Have the strength to allow me once more to be your wild companion upon the green surface of the earth. Eurydice followed Orpheus through the crowds of shades. She was silent, drifting light as air in his wake, but she matched his quick pace. Past Cerberus, the three-headed hound, whose teeth receded beneath his hanging jowls as they drew near. Into Charon's boat, across the river Styx, which lapped at her trailing fingertips with longing. You're ours, it seemed to whisper, but it let her pass. Buoyed by hope, she followed Orpheus up the craggy slopes, amongst the formless rocks, towards the gates of Taenarus. Her hope ballooned as they climbed higher and higher. They were almost there. Orpheus's back looked straight and strong, bent toward the surface of the earth like an arrow. There she saw it, the light seeping through the gates, almost imperceptible to the eye, but to Eurydice, accustomed to death's darkness, it was a harsh glare. Even from here, down the path and shielded by Hades' fumes and mists, she could feel the unfamiliar heat. As the rays of light hit her, her shadowy form started to become more solid. Her limbs felt strong. She could almost feel a human heartbeat in her chest. But Orpheus was slowing. 
Why is he slowing? And now he has stopped. Why has he stopped? His body is shifting. Oh, gods, no. Orpheus, don't turn to face me. Orpheus, framed by the looming gates of Taenarus, slowly shifted. First his torso, then his shoulders, and then, with a final, devastating snap, his golden head. It was Eurydice's Orpheus, beautiful Orpheus, with his golden, glowing smile. Eurydice, my beloved bride, you're here! Your perfect face, though shadowed with death, so close to me. Oh, Orpheus, I've been here. I have followed you out of Hades as the god of death promised. My beloved, why do you speak so sadly? How could you forget Hades' terms, foolish Orpheus? Because you've always been blessed by your father, by every man who hears your voice. That's why you take the gods' challenges lightly. But Hades gave you one chance to reverse the tides of fate. He won't give you another. Oh, we were so close. So close to my life, to our love once more. But you've consigned me to death with your careless doubt. You've killed me. Twice over. No. No! That can't be. I faced the Valley of Darkness for you. I would die for you a thousand times over. How arrogant you have been, my love. Perhaps you would die for me. But you flouted the conditions of Hades, and now you live while I... I must sink back into the shadows. What have I done? Oh, Eurydice, I will try again. I will save you. I'll amend my folly. It's too late, Orpheus, for both of us. My hell will be no worse than yours. Your living hell amongst the golden light and flowers. I'll be surrounded by the darkness of death. But you'll carry the darkness of grief and regret for the rest of your life. Eurydice! No! Goodbye, my love. Goodbye. Orpheus. Eurydice receded into the eddying mists of Hades as the heavy shroud of death descended once again. And Orpheus let out a great sob as the full weight of his mistake hit him. Coming up, Orpheus faces the consequences of his folly. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Hades, moved by Orpheus's music, gave him an opportunity to win back his beloved Eurydice from the underworld. 
all that Orpheus had to do was make the journey back to the living earth without turning backwards for a glimpse of Eurydice. Eurydice, Hades promised, would be right behind Orpheus, and once the couple reached the living earth, she would be a living bride once more. Hades kept his word, but Orpheus could not resist turning back to make sure Eurydice was there behind him. Impatience, fear, and weakness ruined the one chance Orpheus and Eurydice had at recovering their love. Orpheus, shattered and bewildered at this unthinkable conclusion to his mission, stood sobbing at the top of the steep slope into Hades. And then he realized the only choice that remained. He would descend again. He would follow Eurydice into the shadows. This time, there would be no hope of ever returning to the Earth's surface. Eurydice was right. Hades would not give him a second chance. But if he could not bring Eurydice back to life, at least he could join her in death. He turned back towards the shadows, no fear in his descent this time. He stumbled and slid down the slope, reckless in his despair. He didn't care what happened to his body. All he wanted now was death. Finally, he reached the shore of the river Styx. The tall, dirty figure of Charon stood waiting in his wooden boat. Orpheus fell on his knees in the shallows, clinging to the edges of the barge. The inky, icy waters painted him with their lapping waves. O oh, ferryman of Hades, please let me ride upon your boat into the darkest shadows of the underworld. There are no second chances in Hades, Orpheus. We gave you special allowances because your song moved us. But you broke your word. Please, I beg of you. This time, I will stay on the other side. Never again will I venture back toward the land of the living. Ferry me like any man who comes here to lay his soul to rest amongst the shadows. <laughs> you are not dead yet. Go back to the land of the living. Die there. And then you'll be as welcome as any dead man with a coin beneath his tongue to pay for passage. Until then, you shall not set foot upon my boat. Charon pushed Orpheus's hands off the sides of his boat with his long paddle and drifted away into the dark mists covering the surface of the water. Orpheus was devastated. He shivered, cold and heartbroken. Life held nothing for him now. He couldn't bear to leave the underworld and face the light of day. But he could not pass deeper into Hades if Charon would not ferry him. And so Orpheus stayed there, on the banks of the river Styx. Every time Charon returned to the shore, he began his pleas anew. So it went for seven months. Orpheus started to look like a shade himself— shadowy and insubstantial. He subsisted on sorrow, shame, grief, 
and the salt of his own tears. But Charon simply shook his head. However much Orpheus looked like death, he was not dead. At last, Orpheus had had enough. His grief had brought him no closer to his beloved. After seven months of weeping, he turned his bony back on the river Styx and began the ascent to the world of the living. He pushed back through the gates of Taenarus, back to life. The light of day seared Orpheus's pale skin, but he cared not. He fell to the living earth like an old man. A fever overtook him. His mind was hazy. He couldn't concentrate. The day was bright around him, but he carried an overwhelming darkness within, as Eurydice had known he would. His grief and guilt were as shadowy and endless as Hades itself. Several days of this haze passed, until finally, in a stupor, he stumbled to a nearby stream and drank the living water flowing there. He plucked berries from the nearby bushes and ate. And then he fell into a deep sleep. When he woke, the fever had broken. He was squarely back in the land of the living. Orpheus blinked sadly at the beautiful day around him. Then he did the only thing he could think to do, musician that he was. He sang. I lost my wife, my new bride, when my heart was full of strength and love. I searched for her through the forest and past the jaws of Taenarus. I walked amongst the shades for her and sang for the three-headed hound. I sang for Hades too, for her, and made my plea. I showed strength, but then, when strength was needed most, I was weak. I turned my head and abandoned Eurydice to death. Earth, she said, will be a living hell for my mistake. And she spoke truth in death, just as she did in life. Orpheus traveled across all of Thrace, lamenting. He sang of Eurydice, so beautiful, so wild and young. And he sang of his own hope and his failure and weakness that ended it all. Men and women came to listen to Orpheus's song at every town he passed. They were awed by his power to move them to tears with his tale of love and loss. Some women, in return for Orpheus's art, tried to give the singer love. They wooed him with their sultry eyes and their flowing hair, as Eurydice had once done. But Orpheus turned them away. Young men sometimes did the same, slipping their lithe arms around his waist and whispering in his ear. These he occasionally accepted. They reminded him less of perfect Eurydice, and they helped to push his pain away. But his grief always returned with a vengeance. 
A pattern emerged, and Orpheus grew almost to like it. The whisper of reprieve in the loving arms of a handsome boy, then the crashing return of his grief and shame. But the years wore on, and he grew to hate the pity and pain his song awoke in the breasts of all who listened. He didn't deserve the hope or comfort they offered in return for music. He'd killed Eurydice. It was time to spurn the company of men as well as women. Time to flee all human society. Orpheus slunk deep into the woods, his lyre still playing haunting melodies that made all of nature weep. But without the goodwill of human hands, there was no respite from his grief. He ate little. He drank less. He wandered through the mountains with nothing but his lyre and the clothes on his back. His beard grew long across his youthful face. His golden hair grew shaggy and dull. His eyes lost their luster and seemed always to gaze, glassy, at something unseen. Orpheus was broken and alone, in a waking dream that was always about Eurydice. He wandered like an old man, despite the fact that he was still in his prime. Then midwinter hit, and the Menads entered the woods. <laughs> <laughs> the Menads, a group of Thracian women inspired by the ritual mania of Dionysus, the god of wine, entered the mountains of Thrace for their rituals every other year at midwinter. They came with their hair down, thrashing in the icy wind. They threw away their sandals and pulled off their fawn skins as they ran through the twisting forest paths. And then they began their dance. High-pitched music pulsed as they tossed their naked bodies back and forth amongst flickering torches, whirling and shouting, shaking their heads and jumping. Then they spread out through the woods, their ecstatic cries piercing through the darkness as they ran, tumbled, twirled, and shook. Orpheus heard them coming. <laughs> the Menads must be out this midwinter night. Pray the gods keep me safe from their mischief. But who's that figure there, lurking weak-kneed in the dark? It is I, Orpheus, the singer of Thrace. I bid you dance on. Enjoy your nights of freedom so wild and unabashed. I stay here not to watch nor interfere, but simply because these woods are my home now. Orpheus, how delightful. Play me a song so I may dance through the woods with the mad god of pleasure at my side. As you command, Minad. I love to sing, and tonight is your cult's night. <laughs> oh, I'm whirling, I'm whirling to the mountains. Come, Orpheus, 
dance with me. I would that I could. You make me think of my Eurydice in another form, so free and wildly alive. But I cannot join your dance of pleasure. I have forsworn the company of women and the joys of the flesh in the absence of my beloved. I am a killer, and I suffer for it. <laughs> we celebrate Dionysus tonight, you foolish boy. Any of us could be killers tonight. Set your mourning aside and throw your body into the wind with us. Enter our celebration and ecstasy. You lost one love. Why lose the opportunity for another? Orpheus was beguiled by the wild freedom of this dancing maid. Her rhythmic dance and the careening tilt of her neck enticed him. He felt younger than he had in a long time, more present. Perhaps a dance with the Menad and her sisters would not be a betrayal of Eurydice and of his grief. One night of dance and nothing more to forget the pain and celebrate Dionysus. And so Orpheus joined the dance of the Menad. He leapt and twisted and let the dark, heavy grief which haunted him whip out in lashes of arms and legs. He played his lyre as he danced and loosed his voice, like the Menads, in cries that pierced through the mountain slopes and echoed softly in towns far away. Sleeping children heard his savage, mournful tune. Lovers tossed beside one another, unsure what it was they heard, but they were moved, even in their dreams. Brides and grooms held one another close, Orpheus, amongst the Menads, danced on. But the Menads didn't just want to dance with Orpheus. They wanted him to join their freedom fully. They wanted him to give them his body. Coming up, Orpheus resists the Menads' lustful demands. Now, back to the story. Orpheus emerged from the underworld shattered and heartbroken, knowing he had lost his only chance at recovering his beloved Eurydice. At first, he sang of his heartbreak amongst the Thracians and sought comfort in the arms of men. But this was shallow comfort, and eventually he relinquished the company of humanity and sang his lament to the mountains and the forests of Thrace alone until the Menads arrived and convinced him to dance by their sides. Orpheus, you dance with us and you feel the ecstasy of our dance, as is right. But our wildness at the rites of Dionysus does not end with dancing. Come, lay with us. You Menads are wild and beautiful, but I repeat, I have given up the company of women. For however beautiful you are, however much you call her to my mind, you are not Eurydice. And no other woman can take the place of Eurydice in my heart, nor in my bed. Forgive me for impinging on the freedom of your rights. I shall go. 
Oh, silly Orpheus. You should have chosen our love. Now you'll get our wrath. Let the chase begin, my maidens. May Dionysus grant our legs speed and our hands strength. <laughs> <laughs> Run, Orpheus, while you can. Minet, let me go in peace. It's too late for that. Oh, look at you. You're slowing. We'll catch you yet. Orpheus careened through the wood his shattered body no match for the graceful strength of these hardy women. Perhaps he should have simply stopped and let the end come, an end that he had thought he wanted ever since he lost Eurydice, but he found, strangely, that in the face of death, he craved life. His mind turned in desperate circles. One night with Menads, would it be so bad? Eurydice gone so long now. But as the Menads cried, as they descended on him, it was too late for that. Now they wanted blood. Orpheus cried out in agony as their hands clawed at him, tearing him limb from limb in savage, bloody glee. But his cries went unanswered. The women were fueled and inspired by Dionysus, the god of wine and of ritual madness and ecstasy. Orpheus had used up the graces of the gods. The pain intensified, but as it did, Orpheus felt his mind clear. He sank away from the horror of this death. Peace flooded his spirit, for the first time since that day he found Eurydice lying on the forest floor. His trial, finally, was over. He closed his eyes and pictured Eurydice, forgetting his loss and his weakness, remembering only love. It was time to cross the river Styx one last time. It was time to join Eurydice on the other side. The Menads ripped Orpheus's body to shreds, then scattered the pieces through the forests and the fields of Thrace. But even in death, Orpheus's sweet voice sang of Eurydice. As his head rolled down the rocky mountain slopes and crashed into an ice-cold winter stream, his frozen tongue gasped, Eurydice, Ah, poor Eurydice, with its final ebbing breaths. All along the stream and through the mighty forests and mountains of Thrace, the riverbanks echoed with his cry. It still echoes today. Orpheus's challenge was simple on the surface. Look forward, don't turn back. But it proved to be more difficult than it seemed. Distrust and doubt plagued his ascent. The theme is clear. Dwelling on the past prevents us from walking into the future. This message is so powerful that it appeared in multiple mythologies in ancient times. 
One example is in the Bible's Old Testament. Lot's wife, flouting the instructions of God, peered over her shoulder to watch the wicked city of Sodom burn. Sodom was her home, however evil it was. Perhaps she could not quite bring herself to give up on the past. As punishment for failing to follow an order from God, she was turned into a pillar of salt. But the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice contains an extra ingredient that helps it to stand out against similar tales. In addition to being a parable, it's also a classic love story that can be easily adapted to reflect changing social norms and views on romantic relationships. For example, Ovid's version of the story leaves Eurydice's perspective largely unexplored. He writes only the following. Dying a second time now, there was no complaint to her husband. What then could she complain of except that she had been loved? Some 20th century versions of the tale have taken license with that open-ended question. In her poem, Eurydice, modernist poet Hilda Doolittle, pen name H.D., suggests that Eurydice sees Orpheus as arrogant and ruthless and ends the tale with Eurydice claiming powerful ownership over herself and her place in Hades, however dark and ugly it might be compared to her previous life with Orpheus in the living world. Author Margaret Atwood posits in her poem, Orpheus, that Eurydice had no interest in returning to the land of the living at all, and followed Orpheus back toward Earth simply because she was forced to by the pact he'd made with Hades. And in her Tony Award-winning musical, Town, playwright Aeneas Mitchell depicts a Eurydice who willingly chooses to go to the underworld in pursuit of a better life. The emotions behind any tragic story of love and loss are as complex as they are universally understood. And because the tale of Orpheus and Eurydice leaves us room to imagine different reactions and different perspectives, the story remains as fresh and relevant today as it did in ancient times. The myth may be thousands of years old, and Orpheus and Eurydice dead a thousand times over, but their story lives on. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday we dive into another dark, classic tale. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler. 
is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Nora Battelle. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens-Diamond, Susanna Corrington, Alastair Murden, and Steve Pinto. (laughs) ¶¶